Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And tonight we're here with one of the nation's leading Democratic pollsters who's working for his home state senator in the 2020 presidential race. That would be Ms. Kamala Harris. In case you've heard of her. He also helped Barack Obama keep the White House in 2012. He's an expert in voter behavior. And we've got a lot of questions for him about polls, what they mean, and I don't know. Who, who's going to win in 2020? I want to ask him about our behavior as well while we're at <laughs> Yeah, it. maybe, maybe uh, he'll have some insights. Have some insights. Maybe he even has a crystal ball. I don't know. We're going to get to all that in a bit with David Binder. He's the president and founder of David Binder Research in San Francisco. Right where we are. But let's talk a little bit first about Gavin. That'd be Governor Gavin Newsom. The he, governor. The <laughs> Cabinator. He unveiled his updated budget proposal, known in Sacramento as the May Revise. Um, and it was good news for California. Four billion more in revenue than he had predicted in January. Um, Scott, you got a chance to talk to him after he spent 90 minutes on stage. 93. Talking, 93 minutes. Pointed out to which me was shorter, minutes. I believe, than the January budget proposal. He, he said he'd gotten treatment for going too long. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's well, beginning to work. It was interesting. I mean, we were we were sort of all watching it together here in the newsroom once I got back from the DMV. Um, as an Another aside, story. it was actually a very pleasant experience. Um, but we were going, you know, by now, Jerry Brown would have been like, OK, my budget director is going to come answer these in the weeds question. But but he's like, I mean, out there on MCO versus like the 60 40 split in Medi-Cal counties and stuff that I mean, even people like me who have covered it are kind of like, yeah. what was that? Yeah, no, he really geeks out on this stuff. And it's interesting because his the staff, the finance staff are all there sitting and and he called him out. I mean, he yeah, was... yeah, he called him out, called on them a couple of times. But let's I, you know, I got a chance to talk to him uh, for about you know, a little bit this afternoon. And here's a little, little short clip. Uh, we talked about things in the budget that he wants to spend more on, including universal health care, which is one of those. Uh, you know, look, I'd love to move forward more expeditiously with universal health care. Uh, we have the capacity to do more than any other state. This budget reflects that. Uh, but obviously, it's going to take a few more years to truly have the resources, which are in the multiple billions of dollars, uh, to ultimately achieve that goal and ultimately advance the real goal, which is changing our financing to a single-payer financing framework. And, of course, Marisa, single-payer is one of those fraught issues uh, that has gotten caught up and sort of spit out by the legislature. Uh, Anthony Rendon and the governor, in the, you know, when he was lieutenant governor, had some you know, uh, disagreements over the way to proceed on that. Uh, and there's still disagreements. And you know, it's, it, it's not surprising in some ways. It is a huge part of the economy. And uh, as we'll talk maybe with our guest with, in a little bit, David Binder, you know, Kamala Harris suggesting, oh, we're just going to get beyond insurance and move on to single payer. It's obviously much more complicated than that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that this is one of those interesting ones. And I, and I think it sort of speaks to a bigger debate in the Democratic Party, which isn't the ultimate goal of what they all want. I think everyone agrees they would like, you know, whether it's single payer, universal, everybody to be covered, that it that healthcare would be cheaper and more accessible. I think so. But then you mentioned, oh, and you're going to have to pay more in taxes. Or, then, then the, you know, the support tends to go down and you're going to lose the doctor you have. I mean, so I think it's, as they say, the devil is in the details, because as we saw with Obamacare, you know, when things are overpromised, I mean, he said you can keep your own doctor. Some, a lot of people weren't able right. to. And But how much do you pay a month for health care? I mean, that's, I, I feel like that's also the interesting part of the debate. Like people don't factor in what sure. we're already paying. Uh, of course. My point is more that like Democrats in general uh, agree that everyone should have access to affordable high quality health care. Sure. That is sort of the basis of their program. And then when we get into the details over whether it's single payer or universal and what that means and who pays for it. I mean, the bottom line is it doesn't really matter because they would need um, a waiver from the federal government support in doing this. Although Trump but, might just say, yeah, have at it. Go yeah, for it. I mean, you know. <laughs> but anyway, my point was just that like this whole battle between the speaker and Newsom, um, I think, you know, is, is partly a microcosm of that debate. And then partly just about, I think, some of the existing tension between these two men, which may have started over single payer. But, you know, what Newsom did recently was saying this commission that you guys created last year to kind of study the issue and broader health care things should only be focused on single payer. Rendon disagrees. Um, the legislature sort of then alternately wants to go even further than the governor when we talk about extending care to undocumented immigrants through um, the state's Medicare, Medicare program. Newsom is up for up to age 26. I think the legislature right. wants to go further. And he said, fine, fine, three and a half billion. I'd love that. Yeah, exactly. Um. <laughs> uh, we did put uh, more, a lot more money into the uh, rainy day fund, uh, which uh, I think is up to about or will be up to about $16 billion. Yeah. And it, he said it'll get to its constitutional cap within a year or two. I think the more interesting fight, the debate that's going to play out here is he, his administration is reading the ballot measure voters passed that created that rainy day fund as requiring the state to now create a kind of separate fund for schools. But that money is not just sort of coming out of nowhere. It's coming out of money the schools would have got in hand And that they year. can use now. And it's about $400 million. Yeah. And Newsom didn't seem particularly stoked on the idea, but he also feels like that's what the law says. I think we might see an interesting debate over sort of the legality of this and whether it's actually necessary this year, as we see layoffs happening in some school districts, you know, strikes Problems happening. paying for pensions and right. health care costs, all those things. Um, talked also with the governor today about, you know, this debate around police misconduct records, uh, SB 1421, which Jerry Brown signed last year. There's a question of whether those records uh, that are now accessible are, re is that a retroactive uh, part of the law or not? Uh, let's hear a little bit about, uh, from the governor on that. There's also dispute over whether uh, a bill passed and signed last year on transparency and release of police personnel records is retroactive or not. The attorney general, Javier Becerra, is taking the position, at least for now, that it is not retroactive. Um, what is your position? Do you agree with where the attorney general is right now, or would you like to see those personnel records released deep, soon? Deep respect for the attorney general. He's a friend, and I'll just say that in political terms. He's a friend uh, personally, and I have great respect and admiration for him uh, from a policy and political perspective. Uh, we put out a memo. Uh, it contrasts a bit with the attorney general's position. Uh, we believe uh, the law uh, allows for retroactivity. And so you, you would like to, you're supporting basically uh, those who are calling for them to be released now. Well, we put out a, a memo three, four months ago that basically laid out uh, that point of view. 
So um, we're still trying, trying to, to find, find that, that memo. memo. But I think the point is that this is an interesting split. You know, I think the bigger thing is this year what's going to happen around police shooting laws. There's a sort of debate happening um, around that and a lot of really interesting um you know, I think coming together in some cases and then splitting apart between police and civil uh, liberties advocates around sort of tightening the laws and then the training around use of force. Um, I think Newsom having this point of view is an interesting one in the sense that he could have just said, I'm going to stay out of it. I didn't sign the law. It's not my thing. You know, and he's kind of coming down on the opposite side of the police. Un- not kind of. He is on this one. And so I- I- I'm just going to be interested to watch how or whether he weighs wades into that other debate, yeah. which is... Oh, and he said he's about to jump in to like, try to find a happy medium between those two bills, the one that the civil libertarians are right, supporting. Right, but does he actually? Right? Well, yeah, and what does that mean to jump in? And, yeah. you know, because you can get burned pretty exactly. quickly and if you jump into that fire uh, because there are very strong uh, feelings and passions on, on both sides and of that issue, power, understandably. Too. And a lot of power, Money. Yeah. All right, we are going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by pollster David Binder. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. I would say as always, but I was gone last week, I guess. You were gone. Guy Marzarati <laughs> filled Guy in. Guy killed it. He did. But tonight we are here with a man who takes the temperature of voters around the country, especially in years like this one and next when there is a big presidential race. David Binder, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thank you. It's good to be here. Good to see you. So you do polling. Um, and that can mean a lot of things. I think we've seen sort of more interest in your f- profession after 2016 um, and feelings that not all the national polls got things right. But you do a lot of internal polling for um, candidates and, and other groups. Can you just tell us, like, how, how do you explain at a cocktail party what your job is and, and, and what you do? Uh, I try to stay away from cocktail parties as much as possible. <laughs> What's your favorite First cocktail? of all, yeah. All right, elevator pitch? Maybe uh... sitting at a bar, someone asks you, what do you do? Yeah. That's a good question. Um, I guess I would say that my job is to kind of understand 
public opinion and public opinion itself is a very, you know, uh, confusing term to people. Some people don't know what that means. But, you know, I, I always think that when I am asked by a client, whether it's a political campaign or a consultant or a candidate, you know, to to do my job, I would suggest that that is kind of a, a conduit between the real world and their campaign, because sometimes mm. they're very different places. Uh, and a campaign might say, you know, David, I really want to know where the public is on this particular issue. What are they thinking? Who are they talking to? What messages are impacting their opinion, if any? And my job is to answer those questions. So that sounds really like touchy-feely in a way and I think but I think of polling too as like a numbers thing I mean is that because your expertise is in focus groups or do you kind of have to have both those soft and hard skill sets to be a pollster and in any way you absolutely have to have both I think they work in tandem and one of the issues when you talk about what happened in 2016 I think you know there was a little bit of a mismatch between uh, groups that were relying on the quantitative aspects of polling looking at the numbers and the data and the statistics and the qualitative aspect of polling, which we primarily do through focus groups, which is listening to people talk and listening to how they think and what's impacting their opinion. And I'm a firm believer that you have to do both in relatively equal parts to really understand where the electorate is. When you do a poll, you can have a thousand or more people who are part of the sample size. And that, you know, you can, and it sort of, sort of represents uh, the electorate. When you do a focus group, though, it's like a dozen people or something. It's much smaller, whatever right. it is. So how do you draw big conclusions right, you know, from, yeah, from such a small group of folks. Well, you sometimes in focus groups, you, you, you do multiple groups to see if similar sentiments or topics come up in different uh, venues, you know, eight people in one group, eight people in another group, you go to a different city and repeat it. So some of it's just looking for recurring themes. Uh, but other other aspects of, of qualitative research that provide conclusions are just listening to what causes emotion, what causes people to get on the edge of their chair, what causes them to have uh, dramatic responses, what bores them. So, you know, it's not, it's a very different than doing a poll with a thousand people where you actually look at data that is scientific scientifically grounded in statistical theory versus sitting around a table talking to people and just commenting on what they say. So is that kind of psychology in part? A bit, yeah. A bit of psychology and sociology and all that yeah. stuff. Well, you worked in, on, on Hillary for Hillary in 2016. Yes. So you were out there in the field doing these focus groups. Right. And I, I've read that you, know, you were not surprised by Trump's win. So when we talk about that more qualitative stuff, what were you hearing out there that made you sort of believe that this was a possibility? Well, I have to say that the, um, the precursors to Trump's victory were evident way before the 2016 election. And I can, you know, go back to 2012, 20, you know, even, even before that, when you ask voters what they were looking for in a focus group, this is what a great example of when focus groups actually provide you information that you might not get from a traditional uh, poll. Uh, what they were saying way back before Trump ever announced his candidacy was, you know, I- I- anger at the status quo, interest in kind of someone coming in from the outside, uh, business experience as opposed to political experience, someone that would shake up the system, uh, someone that was not tied to special interests who may have their own money and not feel reliant on uh, donors and contributions and lobbyists and special interests. We heard all of that for years about what people were looking for in a uh, candidate. And then Trump comes along and he checks a lot of those boxes. But so does Bernie Sanders in a way. Um. 
Well, Bernie's not independently wealthy and viewed as a businessman, and he has been in office forever. But yeah, there are some parallels. What yes. do you What do you do in a campaign? Like, I don't know if you did you at any point go to Hillary's folks and say, "Um, we have a problem here," you know, because the polls, in a way, were accurate because the national That's polls right. were accurate. It was the state. What Thank people you did. for noting that, by the way, Mister. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, appreciate I think that. Is that. That's I don't always hear that. I appreciate. Yeah, no, it's more the state accurate. by state. I mean, it's a little bit un- <laughs> well, right. The reality is, it's well, an it's, electoral college. It's the difference, right, between the popular right if you look at the numbers it, yeah, it, was, it turned right. out the way you guys yeah. were nationally predicting. Yeah. it was a uh, clinton plus three right. and that's what the polls were showing so, yeah. so, 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 so why was she so surprised uh because she didn't expect to lose I mean, <laughs> right, but right I mean, if, you know i i guess like was how she is... insulated from bad news yeah. well i don't know that the ba- i mean we could talk a little bit more about what happened in 2016 polling that indicated uh that did not indicate trump would end up in the white house and you know you all we all know that that you know there were three very close states electorally pennsylvania and michigan and uh, wisconsin that uh, were expected to go blue and all of them went red and that swung the election at the same time you know florida was assumed to be a toss-up state, mm-hmm. maybe leaning a little bit toward Clinton. North Carolina was in place, so a lot of them were off. It wasn't just a little bit. But at the same time, you know, there were, there were uh, very large victories in some other states that allowed the elect- allowed the popular vote to be uh, to be on uh, on target. So, no, Marisa, we didn't really, you know, say, hey, You're uh, lose s- Madam <laughs> Secretary, you got a problem here. You really, you really, although our focus groups to this point, I mean, just talking about them, did indicate that, you know, we, we frequently do focus groups at the end of a campaign with voters who, sh- who are still undecided. You know, we don't talk to those that said they've already committed. And when we talked to those undecided voters in September and October of 2016, it was clear that many of them had deep dislike or concerns about both Trump and Clinton. You know, some of them were looking at Gary Johnson or Jill Stein, and some of them were saying, maybe I won't vote. But it was clear that the concerns and the negative opinion they have about both candidates was troubling on both sides. And it's clear at the end that a lot of them decided, I'm going to go with the new one rather than the one that has been around forever to see if that shake things up stuff is going to you know, be worth the vote. And has that changed? Like, are you finding a different or if the election was tomorrow, do you think Trump would win? If the election were tomorrow, I don't think Trump would win. But um you know, there's so many things that are going to happen between now and, and yeah. voting that it's really hard to say right now. And I, I think that uh, Trump's reelection today looks a little bit, the odds are a little bit higher than they might have been, you know, six months well, ago. Well, the economy is booming for one thing. Economy. People yes. really care about the economy. It <laughs> turns, turns out they do. Uh, you know, you said earlier that your job is to sort of be the, the conduit between the real world and the campaign. Uh, and there were reports in the New York Times just yesterday that uh, you uh, and some of your other political consultant colleagues in advising Kamala Harris were, you know, butting heads a little bit with her sister, Maya, who uh, is the campaign manager. Yeah, I, I dispute that, by the way. Oh, you do? Yeah. Which part? Uh, I, there was no butting heads with Maya Harris from my point of view, no. But the question of, because this is a question all the candidates are facing, which is, do you embrace the activist positions on Medicare for all and those kinds of things, reparations, uh, you know, you name it. Uh, or do you hew toward the middle? And, and it, it, where are you on that question? Well, uh, one thing that I always want to point out to clients and other people that, that ask me those those questions are that the, the process by which voters decide who they're going to end up casting a vote for is something that is not 
clean. Uh, and we find this out both with, with through the polls in which voters may contradict themselves in different sorts of questions and ask similar things versus when you and, and as well as sitting down and talking to them in a group in which you hear voters also uh, be less than uh, clean on the ideological scale. I mean, there are certainly some that are going to look for the most progressive candidate. There are some that are going to look for the more moderate candidate. Some of them are going to look at those very policy issues that you just mentioned, Scott, whether it's reparations and Medicare for all. But but the voting decision is a lot more complex. For a lot of people, it's simply like, which candidate connects with me? Which one speaks to me? Which one kind of gets me? So it's a gut feeling? And it's a gut feeling. And it's kind of like, I, I want to vote for somebody that I trust is going to make the right decisions and have my back and represent my views. And I don't need to look at all these policy deal uh, details and kind of compare the positions of candidate A versus candidate B, because I'm going to go with a person that makes me feel like they are going to have my back and represent my views. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a lot of people that are looking at Medicare for all versus in, in single payer and the, the same Policy stuff. But they're going to vote for the Democratic nominee. But they're going to vote for the Democratic nominee. So one thing that is important is that when you, and I by no means are, are trying to discount the importance of having prescripted policy positions. And I think one, one of the reasons we're seeing Elizabeth Warren connecting a little bit in the last couple of weeks is because she has been out front, right. uh, not only with what she wants to do, but how she's going to mm-hmm. pay for it, which is another aspect that Democrats, I think some people think Democrats just say, you know, program. Just do it. Yeah. yeah. Program, well, program, program. Well, isn't I that ironic about- because the deficit has exploded yeah. under Republican Very presidents. ironic. Yeah. Because right. back when I was doing Obama reelected, in 2012, everybody was like, "Oh, what about the deficit? What about the debt? He's spending and he's not paying for it." And we, you know, it's a, a, a pox on our children. And now with Trump in there, the Republicans are saying, "I don't care." About Although we should say well, hypocrisy is neither party has a monopoly on hypocrisy. Yeah, and that might have to do with people's impressions of that president. I want to remind our listeners: you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Tonight we're talking to Democratic pollster David Binder. So one of the things you were just talking about, I want to dig into because I think that there's a lot of people. People, you know, on the wings, left or right, who are like, who are these independent voters? Who are these swing voters? Um, so the question I have for you is, I know we know they're there. Um, how like close to an election do you find that people like that are usually deciding? And are they really people that bounce back between the parties or are a lot of them sort of maybe in one camp or the other, but just don't like Democrats and Republicans? You know, that's a really good question. I was watching a... Um interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, who's been a, a kind of a, a lightning rod herself lately, in which she was being interviewed by someone. And the, the question to her was along the lines of, uh, you know, aren't you too far left and you're alienating all the independents who you need to vote for Democratic candidates if you want to maintain the majority in the House? And her response, and I'm going to paraphrase here because I don't remember it exactly, was that, uh, you know, the, 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 the pundits like to think that we're on this continuum with you know, a third of the people on the left and a third of the people on the right and a third of the people in the middle. And her point was, it's not the third of the, the third of the people in the middle aren't really in the middle. They're really people that say, I hate this stuff. 
Right, but you know, they there are thirty three percent of the people way. that are not on an ideological spectrum at all. I mean, there, there's maybe a third on the left, a third on the right, but then a third of the people that you just can't put on. The, they're not in the center. They're over here on some issues, over there on some issues, and a lot of them hate politics, and they don't like the money, and they don't like the system, and they're just saying, "I want something new and different." And, and those are the people that do swing. Well, one mm-hmm. of the things that are, would be new and different is if uh, a woman were elected president, a woman of color in particular. And you know, we've been seeing articles lately, uh, critical of how the media are covering, say, Beto O'Rourke or Pete Buttigieg compared to your candidate, Kamala Harris yeah. or Elizabeth Warren. Um, what do you make of that? And and what do you make of the question of electability? Because a lot of people f- say or feel... Democrats. A, Democrats. Saying, yeah. There's a lot at stake. We've got to nominate somebody who can win. And I'm not sure a woman can win. This is a focal point of some of the research that is going on now, both both things that, that we've done in our group as well as other public pollsters. And, and it's, you know, you sometimes the way you get at this is very difficult if you want to talk about methodology and find out, like, what does what difference does gender and race right, actually make? Right, because you can't, make. like, ask people straight up, right? Yeah. Like, it's like are you going to vote for a black man? Are you going to vote for a black woman? Are you going to vote for a, a Native American? Yeah, you can't do it that way. Or a gay person. Would uh, you? Yeah. Yeah, would like... you? Or, or would your friend? Because we can't ask you because you're not going to tell the truth. But would your friend vote for a gay man <laughs> as president? You know, that's kind of those sorts of things. That well, we do. I'm okay with it. But but I do, the electability issue is real. And it's much more so this cycle than it is in previous cycles for the Democrats who say that their number one thing above any issue at all is getting Donald Trump out of the White House. And that for there are people now that are saying it will factor into their calculation whether the candidate that they're going to vote for in the primary can win the general and get rid of Donald Trump because that's at the top of their priorities. Do they have a crystal ball? Like how, yeah, like, how do you know that? I feel like that's such a like well, dangerous that's exactly proposition. The thing. It's exactly because the people's factors that make up their own uh, mind as to who is electable or not changes from person to person. It's a subjective bias. And, there, it, sort it, of and I'll talk. And, I'll talk to one person who'll say you need a somebody. Who is not a white man? Because if you don't, if you run a white man, you're never going to uh, electrify the base and get you know people right. out to vote and turn out. It's the most important thing, and you'll get other people that say that you know you if you elect uh, if the Democrats nominate someone other than a white man, then you're going to turn off a lot of people in the center, in the middle of the country, or small town America, and all that. Yeah. Well, then, how do you choose who to work for? I mean, I assume you've had a relationship with Kamala Harris for a long time. But when you look at candidates and 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 their campaigns, are you thinking about electability, or are you sort of just thinking I mean, as far I, as my job goes? Yeah. And yeah. Well, in terms of who you're, you'll work you're, for. Yeah, your yeah. I mean, a lot of times it's kind of I'm just blessed that some people come to me and say, "Hey, will you will you help us out?" And I go, "Sure." Whoever comes first. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, how often within you must turn, reason? You must right. turn some people down. Uh, yeah, we turned some people down, but um, you know, I there, there are certain factors as far as my own uh, or our own values, and and you know, people that we would work for on on issues, that, and other people that we would never work for on issues. And we're obviously a democratic firm that only works for democratic candidates and partisan races, even though we'll work on bipartisan I know, issues. We know that one of your clients was Anthony Weiner. Um, That's right, yeah. and I forget. I think he was thinking about a comeback. I think at that point. Yeah. Um, what was, was that like? How did that happen? And. <laughs> 
he's like persona non grata now. Uh, certainly and in the Clinton household. It was a household. referral. I mean, when Anthony Weiner initially came to us, it was a referral from someone else who who were looking at us primarily as kind of doing the qualitative research that was ne- that they felt was necessary to get underneath because it's when they have a sensitive issue, it is more important to kind of sit around and talk people first. And he was plotting a comeback, but that you know when he did uh, end up running for mayor the second time, he ended up going to another group as well. So I unfortunately wasn't always with him on that. <laughs> well, that, that probably <laughs> was next a good time. Thing. Okay, so question as the expert here. Um, if you look at the polls now, Joe Biden is leading yes, most of them. He is. Um, it is a long way from now to November 2020. Um what would you tell voters about polls now and just what they mean at this stage in the game, especially given that big lead he still has? Yeah, that's I, I'm really um, it, it, an important question because I'm looking now at, at um, what the polls said at equivalent times in in 2008 and in other times when we had more of an open race. And, you know, there you, even today we can look at polls and at this time out in 2016 they had Hillary Clinton way ahead in the Democratic nomination in 2008 they had Rudy Giuliani way ahead and Hillary Clinton way ahead again so crazy so one of the things is a lot can happen and we're a long ways out and for people to look at the polls now and say that they are predictive of what's going to happen in 2020 is absolutely not the case because history shows a lot of things will happen and a lot of things will change people's minds well one of the assumptions is that Joe Biden's support is really and even Bernie Sanders to a certain extent is based on familiarity, name ID. Mm-hmm. And yet his numbers have gone up since he uh, announced. You yeah. know, some people thought, you know, that would be the best day and then it would go be down from there, but not, you know, maybe that'll happen eventually. See, one of the most interesting things about Donald Trump's ascension is that it threw out a lot of the old rules about right. polls and about politics. So, you know, you ask me this question now and I could say, well, you know, in 2008, this happened. In 2016, that happened. And it's kind of like, well, it's a whole new world now. We don't know what's going to happen. And I and maybe that Joe Biden's numbers now are going to be sustained because of the nature of wanting someone who's been there before who reminds him of stability of the Obama years as opposed to the chaos of the Trump uh, uh, Twitter feed every day. Uh we don't know. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, I would I would tend to think that a lot of things can happen. We're a long ways out. But, you know, maybe, you know, Joe Biden's bounce that you're talking about, Scott, is something that will sustain time. We just don't know. Um, I, I tend to think it's going to wane a little bit over the course of the microscope and being out in public. But mm-hmm. times yeah. may not be the same as they were in the past. Yeah, the debates right, will be big. Ten seconds. What's the state we should watch most closely right now? Wisconsin is probably the state number one because of uh, what we've seen lately in there. Now the new Florida. Awesome. All right. You heard it from David Binder. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm going to go to Wisconsin right now. (laughs) Get some cheese. All right. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can find me on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter feeds, I'm at Scott Schaefer. (laughs) Be careful what else you I don't have any many followers. (laughs) I'm Marisa Lagos. You can always find me on Twitter at MLagos. That is going to be a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Thanks for joining us. See you next time. Hi, 
I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 